All right, well, let me go ahead and pray and we'll begin. God, we are grateful for this day of uh, life that you have provided to us. We pray that we would be good stewards of it, that we would bless you and thank you for it, um, that in trials and in blessing, we would recognize all coming from your hand and that we'd be found uh, faithful by, by your strength and by your grace at work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing our study, which has kind of become a study through the Pentateuch. We've, um, over the past couple years, we've done uh, not just all back-to-back and in a row, but over the past couple years, we've, we've done uh, Genesis, Exodus, most recently Leviticus. Makes sense, right? We're going in order here. Um, so today, you math people are rejoicing. You're like, finally, a book about numbers, right? You're so excited. You get to run all your equations. Um, so yes, this is the book of Numbers. Um, what are some things you guys are already familiar with out of the book of Numbers? Anything you are familiar with? Um, any things that you have found helpful in your own Christian life as you th- have studied or read Numbers you want to share? We'll just maybe do a minute or two of this. And it's okay if you don't have anything, because then that just means we need this class more than ever. <laughs> What do you remember about, even if it's not something you maybe have learned or found spiritually beneficial, what, what are some things you know happen or have read in Numbers? That's where I stopped my reading through the Bible for a year plan. Yes, yes. So, you know, interestingly, Numbers uh, is, is the name that, that we tend to give to it, but the Hebrew Bible, uh, the, the word is actually different. It's actually wanderings, or I'm sorry, wilderness. I think it's wilderness. Yes, wilderness. Uh, which is actually probably a better name for the book, right? Uh, because they are in the wilderness. Uh, th- this book is, um, it, it's, uh, it, it covers a, a geographical movement of about 200 miles. In other words, from where they're at, at the foot of Mount Sinai, to get to where the promised land is, it's only about a 200-mile journey. I say only, I mean, I don't think I've walked 200 miles in my entire life, like combined. I don't know. No, I probably have. But, but you know, but it takes... Uh, the, the, the time period covers 40 years in, in numbers, right? So, um, so that, that's a pretty good chunk of time. Um, the, the reason we get the, the idea of numbers is that comes from the idea that there's a census that happens and there's a bunch of numbers where they tabulate all the different people. And that happens twice in the book of Numbers. It happens at the beginning, and then it happens later. And you'll, you'll see the way I give you an outline here that I kind of divide it based on where those two census stuff is, is occurring because those are two different generations is what you have in Numbers. You really have a story of, of a generation that fails and, and then a generation that is receiving grace upon grace, and they will uh, end up doing what God says in the end. So, um, okay, what else? What else stands out to you? Anything else in Numbers that you remember from having read it or that stood out to you, you found encouraging? Yeah. Uh, the Levites were the ones that took the temple down and moved it around. Yeah. That. Yep, that's right. So, so it's, it's, there's a bunch of logistical things that go on. Some of you like logistics. Numbers is also your book, right? I mean, imagine trying to move this entire tabernacle apparatus, right? And it's not like, it's not just logistics like pack it up in the back of a U-Haul and see what happens. Like we're talking about the holy things, the things set apart for worship. And if you did not take care to honor God and do it his way, you're going to have problems. And that actually comes up later in the book of Samuel, doesn't it? And we see a pretty big problem with uh, not handling the things of the tabernacle the right way. So, yep, good. Uh, yeah, also they, uh, uh, the 
Israelites defeated some enemies. That's right. Sihon and Og. Yep. Uh, and uh, that's uh, yeah. And and I, I think there was all little Balaam. That's Balaam right. too. Balaam. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we have some some military things going on. We have some victories going on, which actually occurs when you get to the second generation in this book. The first generation has some pretty stunning defeats because they disobey, and then God says, no, don't, don't go fight. And they say, but we will go fight, and things don't go well for them, right? But then the second generation, they come along, and they see victories. Even that, that first generation, they see victories too, so some of that overlaps in there. Um, but yeah, that's good. Good. Yep, anything else you remember from Numbers? in your time reading it. All right, well, so I've already told you a little bit about the title. Uh, it's based on the idea there are censuses, there's a bunch of numbers. The Hebrew title probably is a better title. Uh, in the wilderness is the Hebrew word for the title um, because they are in the wilderness. Um, this, they, they, are, um, they are at Mount Sinai. So we actually, from when we were in Exodus, you'll remember they left Egypt, right? They, they were redeemed. So this is actually getting into the next thing I want to mention here is that um, this, there's a bigger storyline at play, right? And in the Pentateuch, we're in the middle of this kind of foundational storyline. But you know, remember at ex, in Exodus, they end up somewhere that they stay all through the book of Leviticus. And I say all through the book of Leviticus, that probably wasn't a huge time frame actually because Leviticus is mostly instructions, it's not a bunch of narrative of them. Now, there is narrative, but it's not about them moving and all this other stuff. It's a relatively compressed time period, right? Um, it's, but, but they're getting all these rules. And so where are they? Well, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, basically, right? They've just gotten the Ten Commandments, and out of that flows, hey, here's how you build the tabernacle. And so here's what the Levites and the priests are going to do. If you're going to worship me, it's all about having God's people with God's blessing presence among them. That's really the goal, right? I mean, think about it. So the, the bigger storyline is what? God creates everything. You have his perfect place. You have his perf perfect people, Adam and Eve, living under his perfect blessing, rule, and presence. They rebel, though, against his rule, right, with their sin. So he kicks them out of his place that he gave them, right? Uh, but he's still going to have a people. And we see through Adam, it's going to go through, it's going to go down to Seth, right? And from Seth, we eventually see it's going go to go to Noah, right? From Noah to Abraham. So um, turn to Genesis uh, 17, because I just want to make sure we remember where we're at in the storyline. So in Genesis 17, we, we see that um, there are promises made back in Genesis 3 when the fall happens. Adam and Eve rebel. They're going to be kicked out of God's place. Um, the rest of the storyline is God redeeming people, right? But it's going to ultimately happen through a redeemer. And we see that in Genesis 3 when we get this idea. There's going to be an offspring of woman who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Who becomes clear as you go through scripture that is Satan. Revelation makes that explicit. That's who we're talking about. So there's going to be redemption that's going to come. And so that's why it's important that we're tracing this line. Right? It's Seth. It's Noah. It's Abraham. When you get to Abraham, you have more explicit promises made but they're really just an expansion of what you saw in Genesis 3. Okay, so, so look at Genesis uh, 17, verse 4. And by the way, God had first made this covenant uh, to Abraham back in Genesis 12. It's repeated in 15. And here in 17, it's not repeated word for word. My point is he, he just mentions it again. So Genesis 17, verse 4. Behold, my covenant, that, that's my, my his firm agreement, his promises. God, this is God speaking. My covenant is with you, Abraham, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Uh, So we're talking people, right? God's people. He's going to have a people. And kings shall come from you. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Rule, right? God's blessing rule over his people. You're going to be my people. I will be your God, right? He is God over the entire world, that's true, but he's going to have a blessing presence among his people in the way he rules them. They are going to know his benevolence. He is benevolent, and he's benevolent to everyone. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, but there's also a day of judgment coming. Uh, Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So place God's people with God's blessing presence in God's place. That has been the goal from the very beginning in the garden. That's what was lost in Genesis 3. That is what is being regained throughout the rest of the Bible, right? So he's going to give it to them for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So he makes these promises, um, and that's what we're seeing is an elaboration of that. So, uh, you, you know, you go to Exodus, you have God's people, but they're in slavery in Egypt, right? So, so there's all these things where God is going to sh- get glory by showing his might on display, accomplishing his promises, right? I mean, humanly speaking, you look at that. Well, before that, actually, you look back at things like some of these, uh, I guess, matriarchs, uh, some of these women who were married to the patriarchs. And a lot of, I mean, we have times where they're not able to have children, How's the promise going to happen? So we have all these things that show it's going to be God who's going to make this happen. Human ingenuity is not going to make the plan of redemption come to fruition, right? So we have all these things that, that we, we could say they look like roadblocks, but they're completely divinely brought. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is roadblock, yes, but not a roadblock in the sense that God's like, oh man, how am I going to get around this? I didn't realize this was going to happen. Now I guess I got to go back to the drawing board. It's all in God's plan, but he does it in such a way that humanly speaking, we see roadblock and God is doing it intentionally. So it is, yeah, that's a human roadblock. You can't do this, right? So that God gets all the glory of our redemption because he's the one who orchestrates it. And so you see that happening with, with, with the barrenness. You see it happening with them being enslaved in Egypt. They're in Egypt and they're slaves. How is God's promise going to come to fruition, right? They can't just, they're not going to rebel and win, well, what happens? The plagues and you know, all those other things, you know, they're going to cross the Red, they get to the Red Sea. Well, what's going to happen now? Well, he parts the Red Sea. Um, so we see God leading his people out. Um, then, you know, when they, even when they get out, well, they need to know something about his rule, right? What does it look like to live as God's people? It's not the way the Egyptians were living. So he gives them his good rule for his old covenant people, the law. Now, we're under the new covenant. There are things that change, right? Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the law, but the reality is this is part of the plan. They're going to have a law to know how to live as uh, literally a kingdom for God, right? There's this, this direct uh, theocracy is what's going on through these kings that he's going to put in place. Um, but you know what? They need God's presence and they're sinful. How are they going to experience God's presence among them with their sin and not be destroyed? Well, Leviticus, we're going to have a priesthood who will go between, we're going to have atonement that's going to be made. We're going to have the day of atonement, which we've argued when we looked at through Leviticus is the center point of the Pentateuch. The whole Pentateuch is kind of going up towards this day of atonement, and then everything else is kind of going down on the other side. So really, that and structurally, that is the center of the Pentateuch. Um, and so that's not surprising when we think about what is it Jesus comes to do? To make atonement fully and finally. 
right? Um, so that's going on. But now we get to Numbers and we realize that they're still not in the land. And so Numbers is trying to take us towards the land. It's preparing the people. But again, it's going to show us human roadblocks. The people are faithless. They rebel against God in spite of all the great redemptive work he's done on their behalf. They're still going to rebel. So will God's promises to Abraham back even in Genesis 3 and then Abraham continue? Is that going to continue? How is God going to do this? Well, God is going to be faithful even though his people are acting faithlessly. And he's going to raise up a generation that will obey and go into the land. Okay? So that's kind of historically what we see happening here. Um, a good theme would be, I have this on your handout, um, God's faithfulness to his promises, even when his people are unfaithful. So I think that's a good theme for the book of Numbers. God's faithfulness to his promises, even when his people are unfaithful. Uh, one of the key verses, uh, Numbers 14, 8 through 9 if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give, to, give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. So there's God's promises. Yes, God's going to do that. But there is a, a caution and a warning. Do not rebel. Um, when I was a kid, I used to hear pastors refer to the land flowing with milk and honey. I really was trying to wrap my mind around that. I mean, I honestly was. I never had anybody, I think, for, you know, when I, back in my elementary school days, um, you know, explain to me that that's figurative language, right? But it does reflect the glory and beauty of the provision that's going to come in that land. Like there will, I mean, it's not figurative in the sense that there won't be milk. There will be. The point is you're going to have all your needs provided. But, you know, as modern people, we tend to think, well, I'm going to go to the grocery store and get milk. Um, no, I mean, they had to be provided, right? It had to come through these animals and that meant success. That, that dealt with weather. That dealt with invading armies. It dealt with all sorts of things uh, that could get in the way. Um, anyway, so if you're confused, just so you know, there's not, I always pictured rivers like running with milk and honey. And I was, I was thinking, well, that's a little odd. So yeah, I was a little slow as a kid, but now we, now you know that I'm still a little slow. All right. Out, outlining numbers. I give you an outline here. There are multiple outlines we could go with. Um, it is a little bit difficult to know exactly how we're going to outline it. So I give you one here, but let me just point out uh, a lot of commentators, uh, most that I looked at really, they all like, point to at least there is a geographical outline. I don't give that to you here, but there is, there is a sense in which you see this like unfolding geographically. They start at Sinai, verse chapters 1 through 10. They move to a place called Kadesh. Then 13 through 19, they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they journey to Moab in chapters 20 through 21. Then in 22 through 36, they end up encamped across the Jordan River looking towards the promised land. So geographically, that's helpful because that is really what's happening in Numbers, right? God is taking them from Sinai to his place, which means they're going to go over to this Jordan River and they're going to see the place. That's where they're supposed to go. But the interruption is Numbers ends up being 40 years of wandering around in the desert in circles, essentially, right? Um, uh, the, the other way we could divide it, which I think is, is also helpful, is to think of it in... in um, and I have, this is kind of what I have on your handout, is dividing it based into two different generations. And this is based on the census information that gets taken. You have census at the beginning. That's one generation. It, it takes a census of all the fighting men. They want to know how many men are available for combat because they are about to go into take the land, right? Um, so they, they do that. Um, and then we see a bunch of things that are happening to get them ready to move that direction. They got to get, how are we going to, move the tabernacle. Uh, what do we think to think about rulers? Uh, the people need to be faithful. We need a priesthood that's going to be uh, doing their job rightly. Um, and we're going to see rebellion of some of the priests and all sorts of stuff happen. That's why this gets emphasized. It's not that they didn't know what needed to happen. It's that there needs to be a cleansing because they're already rebelling. Okay. 
um, they, they do experience some victory in battle. That was mentioned earlier. And, uh, and we see that God is going to remain faithful. But this generation is not going to enter the land. And so then we come to the second generation in chapter 26, that faithful generation. Doesn't mean they are perfect. They fail in many ways, by the way. So I'm not saying they're perfect. But they are going to believe God and they're not going to repeat the mistakes of the previous generation. And if we get time, we're going to briefly look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78 reflects on numbers and it says, look, we need to tell our children the lessons learned in numbers lest they become unfaithful too. We want them to be faithful. So we have to tell them God's ways. Um, so that starts with the census. They, they get a taste of what the settlement's going to look like. And then there's kind of a retro and, and prospective thing at the end where it looks back and forward. So um, that, that's a good outline for you to have. For the rest of our time, we're going to look at three different things though. This is the outline for the rest of today is we're going to look at God prepares his people. The people don't trust God and God perseveres with the people. So basically what we're going to do for the rest of the time is I just want to give you a um, 50,000 foot flyover the book of Numbers. Okay, I want you to get the, the big picture. Nobody shoot me down because we're flying at 40, 50,000 feet, but we're going to have this, <laughs> it was just too easy. We're going to have this, this flyover and we're going to see um, big picture. Now, the way we're going to approach our study, though, is that we're probably going to spend, I imagine it's going to be close to 12 weeks in Numbers. There's about 30, what are there, 36 chapters um, in Numbers. So we're going to be moving at a good speed, pretty, pretty quick. So, for example, I think next week we're going to cover maybe four to six chapters. Um, you have to realize a lot of that is census. So I think we can cover that pretty quickly. Um, you know, there are certain parts of Scripture where you really do need to slow down. You know, you can do an epistle and it gets, it gets really thick with information. It's, it can be very good to slow down. There are other places where we can move faster and benefit. And I think you could move slower through numbers and, and benefit. There, there's a place for, and there's a place for reading quickly through epistles to get the big picture. All those things are helpful. The path we're taking is kind of a mid, mid speed. We're going to go pretty, pretty quick, but we're not, gonna, we're not just going to do one lesson, one and done, 50,000 foot flyover and be done. We could do that. that but I think, I think going a little deeper is going to be helpful. So that's the plan. Doug and I will go back and forth um, through this just taking it uh, slow, but not too slow. That's the goal. Today, though, big picture. So Numbers 1, look at Numbers 1. We're just going to read a couple verses here and there as we go through it. The first thing we're going to see is God prepares the people. God's going to prepare his people, and this, this could really be chapters 1 through 10. There's a lot of optimism in the air at the beginning of Numbers. The redeemed people... Um, so we have the people of God and they have received his law. So they are under his rule and they are now set about to set out for God's place. So there's a lot of optimism. Hey, we have God's people, God's rule over us. We're going to God's place that he set out for us. Um, look at uh, chapter one, verses two through three. They're going to do a census and this, this just is going to show us, yes, we have the people of God is becoming, they're becoming numerous. Verses two through three, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. It was a large number of people. Look at verse 46. It tells us that all those listed were 603,550. This is just the men of fighting age. Um, so we do have other folks. We have children, we have women, we have those who are older, likely to be a very large group. Uh, in chapters three through four, we get a census of the priest and we see that there are about 8,500 priests 
that are, are people in that group that would, would be in the, the group that makes up the priest and Levites and things like that. So God's people, there's a blessing there already, right? Promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you numerous. Here they are coming out of Egyptian slavery and there's you know, probably upward of more than a million for sure people that, that are among God's people at this point. So um, that's God's people. God's presence is among them. They have the tabernacle with them. We mentioned that earlier. And we'll probably look at this next week. I have a little diagram. I didn't bring it. It's not, I didn't draw it. It's not mine. But uh, it's like the ESV study Bible or something. But we'll look at that. And what you'll see is that they're told how they're going to camp. And what's so important about that is the center of the camp is the tabernacle. And everybody is organized around the tabernacle. Why? God's presence is central. Think about it. When you get to like Revelation 21, what is central? God's presence is central, right? God is in the midst of his people. He's in the middle. Again, the whole storyline of the Bible is God's people being around his blessing presence, enjoying his presence forever and glorifying him. So, so that's what you see a foretaste of in the way their camp is going to be set up. So um, that, that's going to be set up that way. But um, he's holy, so they, they have to be holy. So we're going to get some holiness laws and reminders. We're going to get how do they deal with unholiness and unfaithfulness and uncleanness in the camp. We're going to see that. Um, they also have to, so, so chapters 5 and 6 will deal with cleansing the camp and holiness issues. Chapter 7 through 9 deal more with worship-related things. And uh, look at number 6. Number 6, again, th- this really is the goal. This is the ironic blessing referring to Aaron, right? The priest, the high priest, the Aaronic blessing. Uh, look at Numbers 6.23. You're probably familiar with this. You may not have known it was from Numbers. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So what are we talking about? God is everywhere. So we're not just talking about omnipresence in this blessing, right? God is everywhere and the blessing is upon you because he's everywhere. Yeah, God is everywhere. The blessing is upon you because it's his smiling face. May he lift up his countenance upon you, right? Um, Essentially, we're saying, may he smile on you. May he be gracious to you because blessing presence. So that is the blessing. That's that's the goal. Um, Let's see. Uh, the people are going to start moving towards the land. So we've already seen something of God's presence and rule among them. We've seen the fact that there's a lot of people. And now we're thinking about the land. In chapter 9, we're talking about moving towards the land. Look at chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. So chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. We're going to see that the Lord is leading his people to the, towards that place. Uh, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. At, and at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, the, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord... The people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. So we see God visibly is going to lead his people uh, towards his place and then towards wandering in the wilderness whenever they rebel. We're going to see that happen too. Now, just side note here, you might be thinking, man, if if God would lead lead me this way, right? Um, If only I could have these 
these visions, these signs, um, these visible manifestations. And it is true. I mean, this is exciting stuff. But again, we need to remind ourselves, this is a 40-year span of Israel's history. This is not the entire Old Testament. So this was not even the norm for most Israelites, right? Um, but there is something unique going, here, going on here, and it is exciting, and we should be thankful for it. But as Christians, remember, we have the word of God in its fullness, his full revelation to us through his son and ultimately through the word that he's inspired through, by the spirit. Um, we have his spirit in us, guiding us, right? The spirit of God is not just tabernacling in some tabernacle. He, we are the tabernacle. We're told that in 1 Corinthians. Um, so we're more indwelt even than this camp was indwelt. And so we ought to remember our blessings instead of, um, oh, you know, uh, it's, grass is always greener on the other side type mentality. We, we need to abandon that mentality. So the people are, are ready to leave for Sinai, uh, the land, I'm sorry, from Sinai to the land that God promised. And uh, what we find in the next section, chapters 10 through 19, is that the people do not trust God. They fail. The people will re- repeatedly fail. Uh, they will uh, disobey God's rule over them. And so God will discipline them, right? And that, that's really what we see in the section, a disciplining going on. And so we have a whole generation that will not enter the land. That's what we're going to find out. The setting is that they are en route to Kadesh Barnea, and yet they end up spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness of Paran. Uh, Maybe I'll bring a map next time just to show you where that is. Uh, One thing to note in this section is, uh, look at uh, chapter 11, verse 1 real quick. So chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Look at uh, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. Why did it cost them nothing? They were slaves. It was like your rations for the day, right? Um, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing but this manna to look at. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. So we have two top, well, top-level leader and then Moses' sister, who in some ways is kind of like top-level leader to a lot of the ladies in the group, and they're complaining against Moses. So uh, what, what do all these have in common? What are the people doing? Complaining. They are complaining. They are grumbling, and they are complaining. We've all experienced, uh, they, they've experienced God's blessing. They've experienced his care. He's re- redeemed them from slavery. His presence is leading them. He's provided them leaders. He gives them food and water when they need it. Now, I understand things are difficult, so let's, let's not be too hard on the Israelites. Okay, I probably would have been complaining too. Things were hard. And they really had to trust God. I mean, there are times where they're like, they really are thirsty. They really are hungry. And the Lord provides. But in our human nature, rather than gratefulness, what generally comes out of us in hard circumstances is complaining. And that's what we see happening here. So I I think it's important for us to recognize this because we often adapt adopt a similar attitude. I thought this was helpful. It's from an excerpt from an article by John Bloom. So I'm going to read it. It's a little bit longer excerpt, but I think it's helpful. Um, in a convicting way. So if you don't want to be convicted, you can just cover your ears and uh, not listen. But I'm a grumbler by fallen nature. Just this morning, a malfunctioning software program required my attention. 
experience told me that this, the likely course, it would be at least two times on the phone with customer support and at least two glitches in the fixing process. 45 minute minimum, probably more. All, all proved true, by the way. Immediately, I resented this time-stealing inconvenience, and when my wife called in the middle of dealing with it, out of my mouth came my displeasure. Life problems don't get much smaller. What is the matter with me? The matter is that I too easily listen to the lies of my pathologically selfish sin nature, which assumes all of reality should serve its preferences and grumbles against anything that does not. The truth is, when I grumble, I have lost touch with reality. Grumbling is a gauge of the human soul. It gauges our gaze on grace. It tells us that we are not seeing grace. Grumbling pours out of our soul whenever we feel like we're not getting what we deserve. Grumbling is a symptom of a myopic soul. Selfishness has caused tunnel vision and has fixated on a craving. The soul has lost sight of the glory and wonder and splendor and hope that is the reborn, redeemed life, and thus it is far too easily displeased. Grumbling is evidence of a soul vision impairment. The opposite of grumbling is in the soul is gratitude. And gratitude also gauges our gaze on grace. It tells us that we are seeing grace. So that's convicting. I think it's true, right? I find that in my own life. Uh, I, I tend to be a grumbler by nature. But think about how, and we, I, if you're like me, you probably tend to not think too much about your grumbling, right? It's almost like, well, you know, it could be worse. Like I could be like selling drugs or something. At least I'm just grumbling. But what is it that God judges the Israelites for? I mean, at the root of it, it's, it really becomes an issue. Like the, the final thing ends up being they directly disobey his command that they need to go into the land because they're scared. So it's, it's ultimately unbelief. But really what's led to this unbelief and what probably revealed the unbelief all along was grumbling. So grumbling is a significant sin, right? Now notice that what John Bloom was saying and what I think the Bible is saying too. Um, we don't ignore hard circumstances, it's just that the hard circumstances push what's inside of us out. So we see it, right? It's, it's kind of like a toothpaste bottle. When I squeeze a toothpaste bottle, toothpaste comes out ultimately not because I'm squeezing it. I mean, that is the force that shows you what's in the toothpaste bottle. That's not what put toothpaste in the bottle. Toothpaste was already there. The pressure just showed you it was there. Same thing with our hearts, right? Pressure comes, I get squeezed. What comes out? Grumbling, complaining, which shows I'm not really trusting God the way I should because I'm not grateful to him in all circumstances. I'm forgetting that he's been so gracious to me. If I'm a Christian, listen, I mean, he's redeemed me from hell and his judgment. And not only that, he gave me himself, his presence forever. And, and yet I grumble and complain, but I do it all the time, right? And so we need God's help. Uh, we need to pray and ask God to help us. And we need to learn from the Israelites. One thing we do learn is that uh, cravings get in the way. Right? We get discontent because we crave more and more. We're not thankful with what God has given us and we want more and more. We want things that he said are forbidden. We want good things he's given us, but we, we demand more of it and it becomes inordinate in our desire. Too much. So this all reveals a heart of unbelief. Well, we see um, in chapter 13, um, we don't have a lot of time to look at this, but maybe you can turn to 13 real quick. We see their greatest rebellion. So grumbling is one of the main issues. Uh, their greatest rebellion is a more direct function of their disbelief. In chapter 13, verse 27, 
they, they send the spies in. So this is probably the thing you're maybe most familiar with from the book of Numbers. They send the spies out to spy the land. You remember this? And they come back in verse 27, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. Again, the rivers are not literally milk and honey for those of you who maybe came in late. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Okay, so things were going great until they said, however. Usually when you're talking about whether you're going to obey God or not, uh, but and however are not very good words to use, right? Um, uh, But we do have some spies that come back with good responses. Look at chapter 14, verses 6 and 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. Uh, The people rebel though. The people do not side with Joshua and Caleb. They side with the other spies and they say, look, we're not going in. Um, In fact, they say in chapter 14, verse four, um, they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're ready to go back to Egypt, right? Where God has just redeemed them from, they say, look, it's better there. Hey, this is true in the Christian life too. You can be tempted to do that. Becoming a Christian, so when we give the gospel to someone, if, we're, if our gospel is life is gonna be better for you, there's, okay, if you explain that and what you mean is suffering and death now, die to self to follow Jesus, forever blessing with him. That's true. So don't, don't overcorrect for the health and wealth gospel, right? There really is, to some degree, health and wealth. I mean, in the end. But if, if what we mean is life's gonna get easier for you now, that is actually probably not true for most Christians. Life will get harder for you. Relationships will get more difficult with people that don't love the Lord the way you do. And you maybe were close friends with them. Um, in, in suffering, rather than just chalking it up to chance and saying, well, you know, it is what it is. You, you know, that some form of chastening or discipline to make you more like Jesus, it's still gonna hurt, right? Um, pruning hurts but it's a blessing. So when you, if you start seeing it though from more of that perspective, okay, but this is actually what is good, even though it's gonna be hard, then you have the right perspective. And, and so we, you, I guess what I'm saying is you don't wanna be, if you, if you save people, save people, by giving them this message of, look, life's gonna get great for you, then they don't really know what redemption is all about. And so they're gonna look back and say, let's go back to Egypt. Life was better back there. I think that's why you see a lot of people go back to Egypt. Right? They may claim to be a Christian, but they go back to Egypt because they really didn't understand what redemption was. They did, that wasn't delightful to them. They, they wanted kind of still some sort of their own kingdom, and they thought, well, if Jesus will help me get it, great. Right? But when it becomes clear that Jesus is sitting on the throne, and he's going to lead me through deserts, and he's going to, pr- you know, the Father's going to prune me and all this stuff, that, that becomes hard, and it's a big pill to swallow. So we need, to, we need to speak the truth to people and believe it ourselves. Okay, so... Um, how does God respond? Well, Moses prays, ask, this is chapter 14, verses 19, ask for forgiveness, um, that God would not wipe out this people. God is merciful and gracious, but he does say this generation is not going to enter the land. Um, what's going to happen to the promises? Well, in chapter 14, verse 31, God says, but your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring in to the land and they shall know that the land, uh, they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. This is a warning for us. Um, Hebrews 
tells us in chapter 3, to take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion. For who were those who heard, they heard God's promises, and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he, God, provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Uh, it goes on, talks about, uh, well, let's see, and, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That warning is to us, and it is pointing back to numbers. Don't be like them in numbers, right? Do not have an unbelieving heart. Like we talked about earlier, those people who they think it's just all about having a great life here and now, and that's as far as they're seeing, and that's what they want. They, they don't want to follow God no matter what. No, don't have that. That's an unbelieving heart. A believing heart says, God, I'm following you wherever you lead. And, and so that's what we need to have. And, and Hebrews commands us to do that. And it points back to numbers. Okay, the, it's not all doom and gloom though. Chapter 20 through 36, this last section, God perseveres and preserves his people. Perseveres with them and preserves them. In chapters 20 through 36, there's about 40 years of wandering that's happened. Um, they end up, um, the older, much of the older generation has died out. We're still waiting to see how the promises are going to come to fulfillment. Uh, in chapter 20, in this section, we see that even Moses is um, disobedient in a significant way to the Lord. And so because of that, Moses will not enter the promised land. So that's a pretty significant thing that happens in chapter 20. Um, we see victories starting to happen, battle victories. God gives the Israelites victory over other nations in this section. Um, and you'll remember that God had said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you in the Abrahamic promises, right? We're going to see this whole story about Bala uh, Balaam, yeah, who um, they, someone hires him to curse God's people and he cannot curse God's people because he recognizes that they're blessed by God. It's, it's got some interesting stuff that goes on in there. Um, so make sure you're here for that one in chapter, I think it's 22 through 24. Um. There's another census that happens in chapter 26. There's still a large group of people, about 600,000, even after 40 years of wandering. So man, we still have um, God's rule. He's giving his people victory. God's people, even though that whole generation had died out, we still have 600,000 people. And now they're right outside of God's place. Uh, and in chapter 27, we see that Joshua is gonna lead the people into the land eventually. And um, we see some special laws that are given. Oh, well, first of all, in 34, we see a bunch of things about how they're going to divide up the land, some, some information about that. In chapter 36, we see some special laws about uh, when they intermarry within tribes of Israel, how that's going to work out. The reason that's significant is because their experience of God's blessing, the tangible experience is that they are in the land and they have a portion among God's people, right? It's, it's, God's, it's, it's kind of like my father's going to, uh, I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says, right? It's kind of like that's the Old Testament thing of this. There's a place for each of them in God's land that they're going to experience. Um, so if they lose that, that's a problem. So they got to figure, they gotta, God's got to tell them what they're going to do when people intermarry, especially when you have daughters who are marrying. And if a, if a dad only has daughters, how's that going to work out? Is he going to lose his land? So they got to figure that out. My point though is what, how that fits into this whole section is that um, that is a further promise that yes, God is going to bring you into this land. You see what I'm saying? It's, it seems like just details like that don't really matter to us, but it's still pointing to God's going to bring you in the land. That's why he's taking the time to tell you what you're going to do when you get in there. 
And, and, it, and it's, it's a real people entering a real land and you're really going to have to do what he says, right? So there's, there's some things that maybe at the end we might think, oh, well, this doesn't apply to us. Well, to some degree it doesn't, but it still points to realities of God's promise to his people, even to us. So what we see, though, is ultimately in this section, God remains faithful. Why study numbers? Let's, let's wrap this up with why study numbers. First, we need to learn from the Israelite failures. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. I just, I just want to give you an overview because my guess is when we get to this section in numbers, we're going to spend a good chunk of time in 1 Corinthians 10. But um, we need to learn from the Israelites' failures. Look at chapter 10, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we, here's the reason, that we might not desire evil as they did. The these things refers back to verses one through five. Look at verses one through five. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Do you remember the, the cloud we talked about? God's presence leading his people under the cloud. And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The point is, in the New Testament, Paul explicitly points back to that generation in numbers and says, don't desire evil the way they did. Learn from what happened to them. Learn that they did not control their cravings, right? Oh, that we had meat to eat. Meat became more important than following God in the wilderness. Meat is not a bad thing. But when you start demanding it and grumbling, it's all a sign of disbelief. And that was the issue. They desire, their desires were controlling them. And so he says, look, don't be like them. You need to recognize the danger of, of letting your desires go unchecked. You need to bring them all under the submission of Christ. Uh, a wise, I guess what I'm saying is a wise person learns not only from their own mistakes, but from the mistakes of others. Right? It's a lot less painful when you learn from the mistakes of others too, isn't it? Right? You've all seen kids do that. Like the wise kid sees the brother do something and things don't go well and they learn. The foolish kid, which there are plenty of them out there, sees that and says, you know what, I'm going to try that and see if we get different results, right? <laughs> and it generally doesn't work. Um, uh, so we need to learn from their failures, and we're going we're gonna to see those on display. And, and we, we need to be humble because we fail in many of the same ways, right? We need God's grace just as much as they did. We're not above that. Psalm 78 is another example where you don't have to turn there, but there's this recounting. Uh, Psalm 78 pretty much mostly recounts numbers. And it's, it begins in the early verses, um, let's see, uh, well, it talks about how they need to tell their children in the coming generation yet to be born in verse 6 about these things. Verse 7, so that, here's the reason, they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. So, so the numbers generation, their failure teaches us that they were not setting their hope in God. It was more about like, where can we get meat? And, you know, where can we get easy life? And things like that. Um, and Part of that was because they forgot the works of God. They forgot God's mighty redemptive work. They had just been led. This is the generation that just saw the Red Sea parted. They just saw the plagues unleashed on Egypt. And so they forgot that. And so this, the psalmist is saying, we need to teach our children these things. 
um, verse 8, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So we need to learn faithfulness to God in, in ease and in difficulty. We need to learn faithfulness to God. So, um, we are going to see things that don't directly apply to us in numbers, right? I mean, they're under the old covenant. Um, they, they're traveling around the wilderness. We're not. There are differences. We do have a new covenant. But my point is, we still have the same God, the one true living God who is faithful, who has redeemed us just as much as he redeemed them out of slavery. And we need to learn from their mistake and be faithful to God. Don't, don't let go astray the way they did. The second thing, and we'll be real short here, but the second thing we can learn is we can learn about Jesus because we see shadows of Jesus throughout the whole Old Testament. Jesus told us to read the Old Testament that way, right? When he interprets it to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he, he shows them from starting with Moses through the Old Testament, all these things that were pointing to him, these shadows, things that said, hey, look, there's a redeemer like we saw in Genesis 3. He hasn't come through the doorway yet, but he's coming and we see shadows, Jesus has now come and he points back and says, look at all the shadows and you learn more about me and who I am. So we can learn about Jesus. We need a prophet that is greater than Moses. Moses stands and we see a lot of example of his prophetic leadership. Jesus is the great prophet who stands in the place of Moses. The people need a good shepherd to lead them. Numbers 27, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of of the spirits and all flesh appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Think about John 10. Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd, right? We need, rebellious people need redemption. Um, God's judgment would hang over us apart from God's grace and redemption to us. In Numbers 21, we see God sends a plague of serpents. I don't know if plague's the right word, but he sends a bunch of serpents among the people for their complaining. People are dying. And what, what happens? There's this building of this um, bronze serpent that if you look, you will live. And we get to the New Testament, we see that just as Moses lifted up that serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, that anyone who looks at him will live, Right? We see that in John 6. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, oh, sorry, no, uh, John three fourteen. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that's what we see in Numbers. Um, we see a lot of things for us to learn. We learn about the faithlessness of um, a people that forget about God's good redeeming work and we don't want to be them. And we learn about um, God's faithfulness to his people. And we have a lot to celebrate there. So, Lord willing, we'll continue to, to plug through. We'll, we'll slow down a little bit and, and kind of look a little bit closer. Maybe we'll come down to 20,000 foot flyover or 10,000 foot so you can see a little more lay of the land, be encouraged, be challenged. Um, that's the goal. So let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, all of your word. Um, we, we certainly have parts that we find so much spiritual nourishment from just every time we read them. We find others where even perhaps in a daily reading program, we feel bogged down. And yet, God, we recognize all of it is from you and different parts serve different um, purposes in our spiritual diet uh, to make us strong in the faith, to make us love you more. And so we pray that we would gain what you have for us out of numbers, um, that you would strengthen us according to your word, that you would humble us before your, your great name, and that we would make much of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.